This is The Guardian. Speaker, this is coal. Don't be afraid. It's coal. It was dug up by men and women who work and live in the electorate. The climate is changing. My problem has always been whether you believe a new tax is going to change it back. We're getting on with the job. We're doing it in a sensible way, which is technology, not taxes. It's practical initiatives. While Australia is lost in petty debates and action on the climate emergency stalls, the Earth is more than one degree hotter than it was a century ago, and it's only getting worse. Already extreme weather events are getting more severe, costing lives and pushing the planet and everything that lives on it to the brink. The ring of fire around Sydney is as angry and as frightening as we've seen. Wildfires in Greece. Flash flooding and tornadoes hit the northeast coast of the United States. People are returning to towns and villages wrecked by devastating floods, which left more than 200 people dead across several Western European countries. For more than 25 years, the world has been meeting to try to find a solution. And for most of that time, Australia has been working to limit what it does to address it. For the first time, we hear from former prime ministers, campaigners, insiders, and journalists about how Australia influenced and disrupted international climate action over the past quarter of a century. There was hissing and booing as we walked into the conference center. I can remember the anger of those who were trying to expose what Australia was up to. We were falling short of the leadership. I felt a, a great despair. There has never been anything in politics that I have felt so deeply as that. This is a story of vested interests. Governments are bought. And I would argue the Australian government has been a wholly owned subsidiary of the fossil fuel industry from 1989 to this day. And diplomatic tricks. It was pretty clear right from the get-go that Australia had bullied, cajoled, threatened its way into a deal that was very advantageous to its desire to sort of protect its economic interests. That put Australia at odds with its allies and the science. The Australian government is more out of step on climate than it has ever been. I'm Graham Redfern, environment reporter for Guardian Australia, and this is Australia versus the climate. The shocking story of how Australia's behaviour across decades has made it a climate change outcast. Mr Speaker, we have set out very clearly as a government... When the government says we will meet and beat our Kyoto commitments is because of this scam that Australia pulled in 1997. We've beaten Kyoto 1 and Kyoto 2, Mr Speaker, and we are going to meet and beat the Paris emissions reduction targets. This is part one. How Australia increased its emissions under a climate deal that was supposed to cut them. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, Adam. Hey, Graham. How you doing? This is Adam Morton, Guardian Australia's Climate and Environment Editor. You'll hear from Adam a lot in this series. We've been working on it together. You've been doing this environment and climate stuff for a while, right? Yeah, about 15 years. You know, is it too bad a joke to say it feels like a lot longer? We've been thinking over the best way to start this story. Yeah, it's a difficult question. Where do you begin? Maybe with a decision made a generation ago that shaped Australia's response to the climate crisis ever since. A decision made almost 25 years ago. Uh, 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 uh. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen... Let me take you back to the Australia of 1997. But I am very conscious of the enormous responsibility that has been placed upon me and upon my colleagues by the verdict of the Australian people today. John Howard had become Prime Minister the year before. That Diana, Princess of Wales, has in fact been killed in that car accident. In this was the year the world mourned for Diana. 36-year-old princess who struck a deep chord in the public heart. And they called it Le Coeur de la Mer, the, the heart, heart of the, of the ocean. ocean. When the movie Titanic came out. Iceberg, right ahead! Thank you. Out of the way, girls! What are you doing? On the radio, it was the Spice Girls. And Savage Garden. Taking up a lot less space in our consciousness, though, was climate change. But already it was coming. The year before, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is the world's big climate science body set up by the UN and the World Meteorological Organization, had published its second major assessment of the science. It said, in its words, on the balance of evidence suggested a discernible human influence on climate. Now, that might seem like a pretty mild statement by today's standards, but it was actually a significant step forward. The IPCC is a pretty conservative body in its language, and it was basically saying here that it was increasingly clear that humans were warming the planet and that was having ramifications. I don't know if it's appropriate to ask to, for, me, for me to ask if you were worried about it at that point. Yes, I think it's impossible to read those reports and not feel concerned. This is Lenore Taylor, the editor of Guardian Australia. Lenore's been reporting on climate policy for nearly three decades. But I do think back then it was still, well, I certainly still perceived it as a very pressing problem looming in the future, something that was going to happen and that we really need to, to think about, but not something that I was scared about right then and there. By now, you had started to see countries coming together to try and find solutions. There had been a few conferences, but in 97, the world was bracing for the biggest and most important one yet, and that would be held in Japan. Kyoto was my first big international meeting where countries were making serious commitments where you could tell what the ramifications were going to be over time. Was it really this meeting that was supposed to change everything or was it just another story that you were looking at and people were reading? It, it was certainly seen as the big meeting where what had before then been objectives were going to turn into things that governments had to do. On another politically charged topic tonight, 150 nations are attending a conference on global warming. The whole world is looking up to us for guidance and anxiously waiting, awaiting the outcome of this conference. World temperatures plus billions of dollars and millions of jobs could be affected by proposed cuts in industrial pollution. Kyoto was what's known as a COP, or a Conference of the Parties. Parties are the countries that had signed the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. These have been among the most difficult negotiations ever held, maybe the most difficult. These COPs are huge meetings where pretty much every country in the world sends a bunch of people to work on deals that are supposed to slow global heating. They're a really big deal. Never in the history of the world has there been a gathering quite like this one in Kyoto, with hundreds of delegates and thousands of reporters trying to come to terms with the most complicated challenge ever faced by the human race. An intricate three-dimensional uh, chess game. I think that kind of understates the difficulty of it. There was an expectation that in Kyoto, developed countries, which had caused the problem, which were responsible for the overwhelming bulk of historic emissions, would make commitments to start to address it. And that would be in the form of a treaty or protocol. Industrialised nations have indirectly placed burdens on all of us and therefore must take the first bold steps to mitigate climate change. It was held in a very, very large conference centre 
on the edge of Kyoto is kind of a huge, you know, like a hangar. It was just uh, seething with people. That's Clive Hamilton. He was in Kyoto with the Australia Institute, a think tank. He's been to a bunch of cops. There are a lot of stands or stalls of people promoting, you know, their latest energy efficiency technology, environmentalists, academics. There'll be a lot of lobbyists there, good ones and bad ones. A lot of the deal-making happens in back rooms in these vast convention centres, and then in full public view there's what's called the plenary, and you have representatives from each country sitting behind little nameplates and flags, and they formally debate what should and shouldn't go into any agreement. It's mostly diplomats and bureaucrats who are carrying it out. Occasionally we get ministers turning up, and then at the really big conferences there are national leaders. Mr Speaker, I ask Leave of the House to make a ministerial statement. Leave granted. Leave is granted. Thank you. John Howard didn't go to Kyoto, but Australia had a reputation for being tough negotiators. Mr Speaker, since its election, the government has addressed the critical issue of global warming in a way that effectively promotes Australia's national interests. At home, he was admitting that climate change was a problem. The world's climate scientists have provided us with a clear message that the balance of evidence suggests humans are having a discernible influence on global climate. But he didn't want Australia to do any more than anyone else. We have made it plain that Australia would not accept an unfair share of the burden. This was an idea that Australia was leaning on hard. It was a full press lobbying effort all pushing towards the idea that Australia couldn't and shouldn't be expected to make the same reductions as the other developed countries. A concept known as differentiation. The whole mandate for the Kyoto meeting was that developed countries should go first because it wasn't fair for developed countries whose industrialisation had, you know, caused the problem to then say, OK, we'll halt the industrialisation of developing countries in order to fix it. But Australia sort of took that idea of differentiation and kind of warped it out of context to say, well, we should get a special deal. We, we believe we can demonstrate uh, that the developing nations can continue to grow their economies rapidly and still adopt... Uh, I remember going on a trip with John Howard to the US and the UK in the middle of 1997 and um, it came up again and again, our recalcitrance, if you like, leading into Kyoto. So there is differentiation there. The concern Australia had was that uh, the uh, group of... I remember Howard trying to talk about differentiation in the Rose Garden before his meeting with Bill Clinton and even then it was kind of clear that the argument wasn't really cutting the mustard and that we were already being seen as a bit of a laggard going into Kyoto. I think there was a fair bit of uh, wariness about Australia's position. That's Howard Bamsey. He was a senior member of the Australian climate negotiating team for more than a decade. Bamsey says before Kyoto, they were given a clear brief. When we went off to Kyoto, we knew that we had to refer a final sort of position to the Prime Minister for adjudication, if you like. But also, as an economy with significant exposure to high-emitting industry, we had to be careful about the way in which policy changed and the framework for policy uh, internationally was adopted. There was some nervousness about, you know, abandoning the industries that were generally seen as really vital to Australian prosperity. OK, so, Adam, Howard Bamsey's talking about industries. Who's he on about here? Well, fossil fuel industries. Uh, it's no secret Australia exports a huge amount of coal for electricity and making steel in other parts of the world. And it was also exporting a bit of gas. It exports a lot more gas now. That's another fossil fuel. And there's also a range of industries in the country that felt reliant on the cheap and abundant energy that the country gets from fossil fuels. And the Howard government was coming to these talks with a focus on what it saw as its economic interests and how they would be affected by any deal. Much less inclination to value the environmental dimension of the issue and a stronger focus on 
the importance of high emitting industry and particularly of our coal exports. The Australian government had done some economic modelling. They wanted to get an idea of how much an international agreement might cost the country and its biggest polluters. The fossil fuel lobby actually funded research by the Australian Bureau of Agriculture and Resource Economics. The agency that did the modelling is called ABAR. Which was an economic model which was used to make these, you know, quite wild predictions about the economic consequences of reducing emissions. We were one of the few countries at that stage which had done anything that even looked like serious economic analysis. ABAR's modelling found that if we joined the Kyoto Protocol... The Australian economy would be reduced. Clive Hamilton says the Australian government was favouring its pockets over the planet. At that time, Australia was, you know, pretending it took climate change seriously, but behind the scenes was bent on sabotaging anything that would require Australia to actually cut its emissions. I think, to be fair, every country goes into these things trying to protect their national interest. So it's not like Australia was the only country doing that. But I do think we were more overtly gaming the system than others. Nevertheless, let there be no doubt that the Kyoto negotiations will be very difficult. This was the context in which the Australian delegation, led by Robert Hill, went to Kyoto. The Senator Robert Hill will do his utmost to secure an agreement that will be fair and equitable to Australia and Australians and be effective in reducing global emissions. So I'd, I'd become environment minister about a year before Kyoto. Robert Hill was a senior member of the Howard government. As well as being environment minister, he was leader of the government in the Senate. From an Australian perspective, our carbon intensity was very high and therefore the challenge for us arguably greater than most. So we calculated the costs of a range of different policy scenarios. We decided what we could afford. And although we hadn't declared it publicly, we had in our back pocket the policy changes that we would need to introduce in Australia to be able to meet any commitment that we made. It nevertheless enabled Australia to be part of the process and to make commitments that were commensurate to others. I have a lot of memories of having very tough meetings with Robert Hill. Jennifer Morgan is the head of Greenpeace International and was then working for the US Climate Action Network. She's one of the few people who's been to every COP. That just stuck with me. I thought, wow, they're very deliberate and very tactical in how they're doing this and very keen to make sure they don't have to do anything. It's etched in my mind where he would get very angry and frustrated with me. I can remember the feeling, the feeling of the strength of the advocacy from his side, the stubbornness and the anger. It was not a nice interaction. Robert Hill says they weren't easy negotiations. It was quite tense for Australia because because our economy was different to most of the developed world, it was often hard for other parties to understand our particular issues. You know, sometimes said that our, our economy is actually more akin to that of a developing country. The options for us were more limited in, in some ways. There was a lot of debate about common policies and measures. The European approach was, we know what all this is about. We want every country to accept the same set of policies and measures in order that we can then judge their performance more easily, country by country, whereas we said policies and measures should be rather related to the economic structure of individual states. Remember... Australia was all about this concept of differentiation. Now, the point of this conference, of course, is to set targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But Australia had plans to do the opposite. It was no good making a commitment that we didn't think we could achieve. And if I might say with respect, we're never going to achieve. We always, in the background, had said, what's the maximum we could achieve in an affordable way 
We had a, a really intense debate prior to going to Kyoto. That's Roger Beale. He was the head of the Federal Environment Department. Before the conference, the government had decided it would not be part of a deal unless it allowed Australia to increase its emissions. Some had argued for 111%. Some had argued for 106%. Bill was spending a lot of time on the phone to Canberra. I certainly do remember a conversation with the Prime Minister where we had a final agreement on a target, and it was agreed. And we ended up settling on 108%. To be clear... This 108% means an 8% increase in Australia's emissions from 1990 to 2012. We were in a situation where the assumption was that the floor would be a 0%. The floor for all developed countries would be to at least keep their emissions stable at 1990 levels. Joanna de Pledge was part of the small UN Secretariat working on the Kyoto Protocol. She says Australia insisting that it would increase emissions was completely at odds with what had been agreed ahead of Kyoto. So the obvious assumption would be, well, the next treaty, that's going to be a strengthening of that. So of course, we've got to at least keep our emissions at zero percent. We can't possibly allow an increase. I mean, to me, that, 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 was, that, that, that was unthinkable. But of course, Australia gradually let it be known that that's what it wanted. In fact, When the UNFCCC was first set up, the agreement was that developed countries would have emissions back at 1990 levels by the year 2000. So a very interesting event took place on the second day of Kyoto, on the 2nd of December, Ambassador Estrada, the chairman of the negotiations, was giving a press conference, as as, as he does, and he was asked by an Australian journalist about these rumours that Australia was asking for an increase a double figure possibly increase in its emissions. And Estrada said, he was a blunt guy, yeah? He said, no, that's impossible. Australia can't join the protocol with a high plus target. And then apparently this was reported in the Australian press and all hell broke loose. Joanna de Pledge says that after that, Australia's chief negotiator knocked on Estrada's door. Feigning, I'm sure it was feigning, great offence at this declaration. Estrada was supposed to be a neutral chairman. Australia was a sovereign country. How could he say these things? And of course, Estrada, ever the diplomat, said, oh, oh, I'm terribly sorry. It was my my imperfect English. He was a Spanish speaker. You know, I never meant that. You know, it's all it's all fine. So he tried to smooth things over. But from that moment on, he sensed that Australia really had the upper hand and it was going to get this plus target. You know, as an academic, I do work on negotiation theory, and it's very well known um, that countries that have um, a weak position, countries that are prepared to walk away, exert tremendous leverage over a process because they're happy to just say no, right? And they're not looking for a particular compromise. And that's that's the sense that you had, is that um, Australia wasn't really going into the negotiations with this kind of good faith attitude of give and take, of compromise, of concession, of winning some, of losing some. For Australia, its negotiating objectives, I think, I surmise, were pretty clear, the weakest possible target for itself. So, Adam, how does this compute? It clearly doesn't. Not today, and it didn't in 1997. Look at it this way. Australia wanted a special deal that was at odds with where the world was headed and with what the science was saying was necessary. Everyone's turned up in Kyoto and the goal was to cut emissions. Australia was telling the global community it shouldn't have to abide by that. This is sort of Australian exceptionalism, basically. Yeah, you could put it that way. The people who defend the target say Australians' emissions would have been even higher than the 108% and that keeping it at that level would have taken effort. But even at the time, many didn't think that stood up. So Australia decided to head to Kyoto with the intention to increase its emissions. But this wasn't the only thing they would try and get away with. There was something equally important for Australia. It's really crucial to the whole process. That's coming up next. Next. 
hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's Tuesday, the second last night of the conference. Roger Beale is with the Australian team. Night before the final session, I had a delegation meeting in the hotel. They were trying to find a way to get the conference to give Australia a special deal. And said, look, how do we work our way around this? What they worked up that night would become known as the Australia Clause. It was, yeah, you could describe it as a loophole. Um, Others described it as a scam. Clive Hamilton says, if you don't understand the Australia Clause... You don't understand really anything about Australia's commitment to greenhouse gas reductions. Let me try to explain the Australia Clause. Australia was then the only rich country, industrialised country in the world, which had emissions and large greenhouse gas emissions coming from land clearing cutting down forests and scrub and woodlands. In 1990, Australia emitted about 193 million tonnes of carbon dioxide from land clearing, mostly for farming. That's about a third of Australia's total emissions. But by 1997, when everyone was meeting in Kyoto, Australia's emissions from land clearing had fallen dramatically by about 140 million tonnes. So what that meant is you had a a huge amount of emission reductions in Australia that had already happened and had nothing to do with climate policy, had nothing to do with fossil fuels or coal-fired power plants. It was just a kind of anomaly in the figures whereby this huge component of Australia's total emissions, land clearing, had fallen suddenly for other reasons. The Australian government knew this. My memory is that that the government was quite clear in the lead-up to Kyoto that they were going to be able to be more ambitious in their target if land clearing was included in the calculation. So they were hinting a lot in the lead-up to to Kyoto that, you know, this was the way that we could agree to a more ambitious target. But we're not sure how to word it in a way that would let them get it through the conference. The detailed calculation of how that is reflected in text was being batted back and forth and back and forth around the conference right up until the 11th hour. Until, Roger Beale says... A relatively young guy came up with the proposition that only an Australia and Estonia had net emissions from land use and forestry And so we said, look, what what if we draft a clause that says any country that has net emissions from land use change, etc., can claim those in its face? Don't mention Australia. So I asked this young man, whose name I've forgotten, to sit down and draft a treaty clause, and he said, well, well, I've never done that. I said, well, now's the time, son. They typed it up. Then Beale took it to Robert Hill. I took that across to Robert. I had to break into the meeting. They didn't want me to come in. And now I'm going in. I put in Robert's hand, and that was the Australia Clause. Product of a bright young man whose name I've forgotten. I think Roger Beale deserves perhaps more credit than he's modestly claiming. Robert Hill. There was a lot of discussion about a clause that would do this that the rest of the world could understand, trying to nuance the language so it was acceptable within their concept of land clearing. 
And it is true that, um, you know, the final wording we decided within our little group in the back rooms of Kyoto during the course of the meeting itself. Clive Hamilton says if the clause was approved... We didn't have to do anything about it and we'd meet our Kyoto commitments. Australia would have to do nothing at all to reduce its carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels, from coal-fired power plants, transport, industry. We could just keep on growing as we had planned to. Right, Adam, the Australian government does have a scientific rationale for this clause, though, right? Yeah, there is a scientific argument here, and it's important that we spell it out. The case for including forest destruction and land clearing in national emissions accounts is that it is a major problem in Australia and across the planet. About a fifth of global emissions come from deforestation. And if we're going to deal with the climate crisis, we need to reduce those as well as emissions from fossil fuels. This was Australia's position, basically, that all emissions should be counted, which makes sense. So what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is, as spelled out by Roger Beale, the Australian position here wasn't motivated by finding a way to cut emissions from deforestation. It was trying to slip in a clause that would further limit what it had to do if it signed up to the Kyoto Protocol. The Howard government was well aware that Australia's emissions from land clearing had fallen dramatically after 1990, not due to decisions that the federal government had taken, but due to decisions taken by state governments. The National Party's been rewriting history on this lately, claiming farmers lost land rights and were no longer allowed to clear the bush due to decisions made in Kyoto. But this just isn't true, and it already happened for reasons that had nothing to do with climate change policy. So the Howard government wasn't looking at land clearing at this point and saying, we'd better cut this quickly. It was looking at what had already happened and saying, it's great that it's been reduced by that huge amount, and we can count that against our emissions because there'll be less pressure to cut fossil fuel emissions. In reality, we can increase them by much, much more and still meet that 8% increase target. That this could all be achieved through a clause written at the last minute by a young negotiator sort of reflects the crazy nature of these COP meetings, especially in the final hours. So, at this point, the Australia clause had been written and they had a target in mind of 108%. But both of these still had to be accepted by the COP. Which brings us to the final night of the conference. We'd all walked over to the conference centre again. By this stage, I think it's sort of certainly past six o'clock, as I recall, which was when the conference was supposed to end. And there was quite a lot of hostility from, let's call them observers, to Australia. There was hissing and booing as we walked into the conference centre. They find their spot but some of the delegations are still in a backroom meeting. We're all sitting around waiting for something to happen. We still had not had an opportunity to state the Australian target, what we thought the Australian target should be. Then, a United Nations official walks out of the meeting. The secretary to the conference, Richard Kinley, came out of the back room carrying a, a Spyrex notebook. And he came up to uh, Robert Hill, and three of us were standing with Robert and Richard said to us, we're compiling the list of targets now. What's your target? Now, Australia knew the number it wanted. Robert looked at those of us who were there and said 108. But they didn't know how that target was going to be received. And when he said it, I don't know what he felt, but I'm thinking... Is Richard Kinley going to laugh? Is he going to say, that's very ambitious or that's too easy? Or we didn't know. He just wrote down 108 on a piece of paper and went on to the next delegation. We wonder what's being done with that number. How will others see it? I think that was right towards the end. Robert Hill. But we didn't know until the chairman gave his final statement of the targets that he expected from each and all parties, whether they would agree to our 108 or not. The backroom meeting ends. The chair of the COP, Raul Estrada, starts reading out each country's target. The European Union, 92%. The US, 93%. Japan, 94%. Russia, 100%. Then he gets to Australia. Australia 108. Our nomination of that target was just accepted.
you remember this moment, Lenore? I do remember people being quite surprised when Australia was allowed to increase emissions by 8%. I remember that being more lenient to target than I thought most people in the delegation were expecting. The Europeans had gone into this meeting saying every developed country had to reduce their emissions by 15%. Almost every other developed country did agree to reduce their emissions. So it was pretty clear right from the get-go that Australia had bullied, cajoled, threatened its way into a deal that was very advantageous to its desire to sort of protect its economic interests. Robert Hill says the focus was setting a target Australia could meet. You know, people that believe Australia should have been more ambitious, you know, can stick to that line. But what would have, what would have been the point if Australia had have said, um, you know, gone for a much more ambitious target that it failed to achieve? How would that how would that have advanced the whole global course of reducing and ultimately re- reversing the uh, climate change challenge? Howard Bamsey says he was later told by colleagues that were in the back room that there was some debate. Within the EU, there was a lot of contention, some feeling that this was not adequate and that Australia, in effect, would not be part of the agreement. Yet, in the end, the prevailing view led the argument that much better to have Australia in the agreement uh, than to have it out. The targets are locked in. Collectively, the world's developed countries will cut their emissions by about 5%. But it's not over yet. The government still wanted to push through its Australia clause. And they'd get their chance. The meeting ran long, past midnight and into Thursday morning. I do remember that night quite clearly. I do remember how exhausted everybody was. I mean, there were people asleep all over the place on every sofa and every seat in the convention hall, kind of curled up behind pot plants. Clive Hamilton also remembers those early hours. And what happened was after it was 2am at the big conference centre and all the negotiators completely exhausted and they'd finally reached an agreement on, you know, this extremely complicated long document. The chair, Raul Estrada, is reading through the text of the agreement, section by section. Robert stood up and raised his flag and, and said, Mr Chairman, Mr Chairman, we have an agreement. Roger Beale. Ah, yes, says Raul, and pulls the clause out and reads it into the text of the agreement. Robert sits down. And then all of a sudden, the penny begins to drop among a couple of the European delegations who come down and say, what's this clause about? Joanna de Pledge says the Australia clause was a surprise. We didn't know about the Australia clause. That was something completely new. As far as we were concerned, um, that emerged in the literally uh, the final hour, I think, of the final night of the final conference of a two and a half year negotiation process. And I remember Hill telling us that Australia had decided not to hand out printed copies to the other delegates ahead of Estrada reading it into the record just in case someone else objected to it at the last minute, which I think is why it did come as a bit of a surprise to these exhausted delegates. It was all gathered through after that. And we have no objections at the last moment now. The delegates were forced, really, to say, all right, you can have it. We'll recommend the adoption of this protocol to the conference by unanimity. I must admit that when it was all over, the first thing I did was go back to the hotel and have a hot bath with about a quarter of a bottle of whiskey. Could have been more than a quarter, but, uh, yeah. So that's why Robert Hill, the Howard government, held the world to ransom. When it sank in, what Australia had done, people were furious. Australia's strategy was to basically ambush the entire conference and hijack the whole process at the very last minute. We want the Australia Clause. And if this meeting does not agree to put in Article 3.7, then we're out of here. 
and you will not have a unanimous treaty. The European Union said that Australia had got away with an outrage. There were all kinds of people saying that Australia had been totally unreasonable and had blackmailed the world. The officials who pushed for the Australia Clause still defend it. I mean, when we came back from Kyoto, we were told somehow we'd tricked everybody and that I never agreed with that and I don't agree with it now. There was a sound basis for what we were putting and that we believed it was achievable and we would commit to achieving it. This was a valid reflection of the difference in the economies. This was a significant source of emissions. And if we could use the Kyoto framework to reduce those emissions, uh, that would be good for everybody. When Robert Hill arrived back in Australia, the government gave him a hero's welcome. He got a standing ovation when he returned to Cabinet. I remember News Limited columnist Piers Ackerman, who, you know, was and is a bit of a sceptic, said Hill should have been greeted by massed brass bands and a 21-gun salute because he'd saved Australia from environmental activism. So I think people were aware that the deal we got meant we weren't going to have to do much. Clive Hamilton was really upset. I was disgusted. Uh, I mean, really, like, viscerally disgusted. And I was ashamed. I was ashamed that my nation should behave in this way. For years afterwards, whenever I was overseas and talking about climate change, I had to kind of apologise sheepishly for being an Australian, for being a member of this nation that had shafted the world in the way that my government had at uh, Kyoto. I mean, I was disgusted. And, and it depressed me for, for a long time. But there's one more twist in Australia's Kyoto Protocol story. Most countries would go on to ratify the agreement. But John Howard decided not to. The ratification is what binds you to the treaty, what binds you to actually honour the terms of the treaty. Roger Beale found out about Howard's decision almost four years after Kyoto, in a phone call from Washington, D.C., on the 10th of September, 2001. I had a a brief and, uh, frankly, cryptic call from Maxmore Wilton. Bill is in his office in Canberra when he gets a call from John Howard's most senior bureaucrat. Oh, Max was famous. Some people called him Max the Axe. Beale says the exact details of this phone call are a bit blurry, but he remembers pieces. He remembers a limo being mentioned. George Bush, the President of the United States, also comes up. And he said he thought that the PM might have agreed with President Bush that Australia would not ratify the Kyoto Protocol. When you put the phone down, what do you think? Probably a few expletives, but also a bit of puzzlement, because it was very fast. And there was a shock. Beale doesn't hear any more on this from Max Wilton or the Prime Minister. Everything was swamped by what happened the next day. This, Justin, you were looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. CNN Center right now is just... We had to get the PM out of there. That was a traumatic business in its own right. So I wasn't surprised that I heard nothing immediately. But I was surprised the weeks dragged on and, and nothing was said, nothing was confirmed. I sort of began to rationalise it on the basis of, well, Max got it wrong or the PM was deliberately ambiguous. Then... Questions without notice. Are there any questions, Honourable Member for Wills? Nine months later, on World Environment Day... Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, My question is to the Prime Minister. Given the Prime Minister's statement that the Government is committed to meeting Australia's 2010 Kyoto target for greenhouse gas emissions, isn't it in Australia's interest to ratify the Kyoto Protocol? Prime Minister. Speaker, I I thank the Honourable uh, Member for his question. Uh, It is not in Australia's interest to ratify the Kyoto Protocol. John Howard tells the Parliament Australia won't ratify. Because the arrangements uh, currently 
and are likely under present settings to continue to exclude both developing countries and the United States, for us to ratify the protocol would cost us jobs and damage our industry. That is why the Australian government will continue to oppose ratification. You cite the example... I cannot tell you how widely he consulted within the government. He didn't consult me, obviously. He probably didn't consult Robert Hill, but I don't know. When Howard kicked the door shut on ratification and did it without consultation, it was a deliberate kick in the uh, face for the environmental movement. And I think domestically it increased cynicism among voters about Howard's later attempts to actually do something about climate. Internationally, it damaged Australia's brand. You know, we were seen as being the carbon pariahs. Right, Lenore, Adam. Australia gets this target that lets emissions keep going up. We also get our own special clause. What do you both make of that? It became clear over time, as time ticked on and we didn't ratify, that it was just a point of sort of stubborn intransigence for the government. And then, you know, it really did mean that any shred of sort of credibility that was behind the argument of, well, Australia has, you know, more work to do to transition its economy so we just need a bit of breathing space was clearly nonsense if the government wouldn't even ratify a treaty where the requirements were as lenient as those on Australia. It's like we get all these extensions on our homework and then we don't even bother handing it in. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, Howard's refusal to ratify, I think, really underlined that his goal was to do as little as he believed the country could get away with on climate. He famously described himself as an agnostic on climate, which is basically, I think, another way of saying he was a sceptic, and that he saw any efforts to cut emissions as economically damaging and to be avoided. And he obviously wasn't alone in that position. Other countries certainly did less than they might have in the years that followed, particularly developing countries, because of the decision taken by the US and Australia to not ratify Kyoto. I mean, basically, they said, why should we move when these countries that cause the problem won't? To circle back around, I think it's also hard to understate how much the Australia Clause decision has shaped what Australia has done in climate sense. Yeah, I mean, the political language, even running into the Glasgow COP, is how Australia meets and beats its climate targets. I mean, that's a direct reference to those emissions cuts that we got from the Australia Clause in 1997. Yeah. The Morrison government likes talking about meeting and beating targets, and it likes to talk about Australia's overachievement on emissions. Sounds like it suggests we're A-plus students on climate, to stretch the homework analogy. But what it's saying is we've done better than the emissions targets we've set, and what it's not saying is we've done that by setting incredibly easy targets, easier than other countries, not based on climate science. And here's the final kicker. The government has also argued that Australia should get extra credit for this so-called overachievement. We've claimed what are called Kyoto carryover credits, which represent how much we beat these targets by, and then use these credits to meet later targets. And until recently, the government was still pushing this idea decades later. The end result is we have a lot of numbers and language that really masks what Australia is doing, or in this case, isn't doing. And that hasn't changed. Effectively, what Kyoto did was set us up with an initial free kick and we kind of carried that advantage through the rest of the 25 years. It kind of set up our ability to avoid really doing any of the economic transition, which would have been so much cheaper and more efficient for us to have done had we started then when we should have started. And I guess the special deals that we extracted set up the kind of um, excuses or the smoke screens that we've used over the past couple of decades to convince ourselves we didn't have to do much and to pretend to the rest of the world that we were doing a lot. So 
the debate that started then has sort of been the same endless movie on endless rerun, repeat over the last 24 years and it's still going in the lead up to Glasgow, which kind of blows my mind a bit. Next, on Australia versus the climate, we look at a time when Australia could have been a climate contender. The Australian delegation was the single most active force trying to bring about a result for the planet. I remember there being a feeling of hope that a dark actor was becoming a bright, shiny, shinier light. I remember turning up and was greeted by Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. There was just a real recognition that we were back. But as Australia takes one step forward, the world gets stuck. I'd left Australia to try and work on this problem and it backfired on me. We're standing on the brinks of failure or success. I'm your host, Graham Redfern. Australia versus the Climate was reported and produced by me and Adam Morton. The series producer is Jake Morecambe. Joe Koning also produced and did the sound design. Mixing by John Chia and Camilla Hannan. Rebecca Pridham and Thomas Phillips assisted with production. Executive producers are Adam Morton, Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 